Um, we are, we're going to sing in a minute, but we're going to start in Psalm 34. Um, I'd ask you last couple of weeks, actually, and, um, to look at Psalm 34 in addition to 1 Peter 3, because he quotes from that. I want to start there, and then I want to have a, a little bit of discussion even before we sing uh, our first song this morning. Um, and then we will uh, participate in, in the Lord's Supper together, and then we will continue looking at, at 1 Peter. So David writes in Psalm uh, 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Peter quotes part of that or, or rephrases part of it it's, it's a more of a statement in Psalm 34 Peter says or it's, I'm sorry more of a question in Psalm 34 it's more of a statement in 1 Peter 3 he says whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit does anybody here desire life and want to see good days anybody how do we do that What's the what's the method you can we can remember we talked about a couple weeks ago we're going to return back to what we used to do we're going to have some conversation what's the method that we do that how do we usually go about seeking life and seeking good days how's that happen well I know if I do not have my morning devotion my day does not go as good so I have to say that that is reminding him I'm here take care How would the culture say that we're supposed to love life and see good days? The culture would say, go through the dust, go grab all the light you can, do whatever you can to satisfy yourself and be happy. Yeah, good. Now, self is preeminent, right? Preeminent wealth. Okay. 
karma, right? That's right. And not just wealth, but stuff. It, not at all. It's all the our possessions, material blessings, our material blessings that we earn through hard work, and right. <laughs> God's part of is out of that picture. Back to what Phil said. There's this idea that that I will be happy if I can. live in personal liberty. And I can be happy if I can do what I feel is right for me. The problem with that is other people disagree with that and so what I so there's this weird thing going on, especially in our in our country today, that that I have I deserve the right to be personally free to do what I want, but I need some sort of authority to make sure that everybody else gives me what I want. Right? So there's this elevation of authority while at the same time a desire for personal liberty. And at some point in time, those are going to run afoul of each other. I don't think our culture sees that yet. But at some point in time, that authority, even if it changes a little bit, right? So say right now that, that I let you have whatever you want, right? But when I die and someone takes my place, then I may be more inclined to let Bree have whatever she wants, and now you're left out, right? Because chances are two people aren't going to want the exact same thing. What we're going to find, what we find in Scripture is, that's not the way that Scripture talks about how we love life and see good days. In fact, it has absolutely nothing to do with me and everything else to do with how I respond to those afflictions that are talked about in Psalm 34 that Peter's been talking about the whole time, right? In your bulletin there is, a, again, a summary of the, the message of 1 Peter. Somebody read that, please. Inside the front cover there's a, a summary of 1 Peter. Somebody read that out loud. Peter is writing to teach his readers and us based on what God has done, how to live where they don't belong when they are facing difficulties. So these people are undergoing affliction, right? And Peter is writing to them and to us, here's how you're supposed to behave in the midst of what you're going through. And I think Psalm 34 is in his mind the whole time he's writing. There's lots of allusions. There's lots of direct quotes. What's interesting is in in Psalm 34, um, David writes, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. It doesn't say the Lord keeps the afflictions from the righteous. We don't buy into the idea that if you're faithful, nothing bad's going to happen to you. There will be afflictions. There will be hard times. Death and disease and disappointment and disaster. We could have all those D words, right? They happen. The question is, where is God in the midst of that? And and how does He deal with us? And how do we deal with it? And what Peter talks about is the issue is not that I fight the battle out there. The real issue is that I'm fighting the battle that's in here. And that's what we've talked about for the last four or five weeks is this is where Peter's trying to get is, is whether I'm 
whether I'm persecuted, whether I'm going through hard times, whether there's people that are out to get me. The issue is not how I can deal with them. The issue is how do I deal with what's going on in here because what's going on here is I get angry, I get frustrated, I get depressed, I get worried, I get scared, I get bitter. And the issue is, am I going to walk by the Spirit or walk in the flesh? And we're going to flesh, we're going to review again in just a moment. But, um, but the first song we're going to sing, what, put the first slide up please, Phil. Um, this great um, hymn, Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Right, we need rescuing. We're going, to, we're going to sing the song and then we're going to talk a little bit about some review of First Peter and lay a foundation for in just a moment partaking of the Lord's Supper together before we get into the, the meat of First Peter 3. But as we sing this song and as we sing the next song in a minute, we're um, going to sing Amazing Grace as well. Let that be a foundation for the fact that we are about to partake of a reminder of what God has done for us. A reminder that He has laid the foundation. He's the example, as we read in 1 Peter 2, 21-25, of the one who, while reviled, did not revile in return. The one who laid down His life for His people. The one who redeemed us from the desire to build our own kingdom. That you have to, you have to please me for me to be happy. Just the exact opposite is true. So let's stand and, and sing together, and then we'll look at, at some scripture some more. Slides and help us to kind of see where we're going and what Peter's trying to do. I remember we began way back uh, in the spring. Peter laid a foundation of everything this book is about by a foundation of, of the gospel. And he talked about the gospel from a future standpoint, from uh, a present standpoint, and from a past standpoint. That, uh, and that gospel that was important in the past, that was important in, is important in the present and will be important in the future, um, moves us to prepare for action. That, that if that's not true, if what God has done for us is not true, then there's no reason to think about anything else. And then there were five things that he said that we needed to prepare for action for. We talked about those over the course of about three weeks, I think. Um, the first two kind of went together. We set our hope completely on grace. And why do we set our hope completely on grace? What was the reason? What did we say? What's the requirement that God gives us? It's on the screen. Be holy. How many of you are holy? In your actions, day in and day out, and in your words. How many of you? Anybody? That's the requirement. God has set an impossibly high standard for us, and therefore we have to set our hope completely on grace. If your hope is that one day you're going to get it in this life, that you're finally going to make God happy by the things that you do and the words that you say, And yet there's this tension because that's still the call for us. We're still called to that. You and I are still called to be holy. Right? And so he says, set your hope completely on the grace that will be revealed to you in the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, that's going to be a wonderful day. 
I'm going to put off this old man completely. The goal is to keep trying to put it off day in and day out and put on the new man, but I fail. And so do you because I know you. (laughs) That's going to be a wonderful day. And then he goes on and says that we're to live in the fear of the Lord. Remember that idea, that that image I gave you of, of how a sailor both longs for and fears the ocean. He knows that it's the greatest thrill ride on the planet and the, the thing that will take his life in an instant. That's the fear of the Lord, that idea of he's holy and awesome and yet he invites us into this wonderful journey called the Christian life. And we're to love one another. It's not just that there's this emotion and this feeling and these things that we do. All of these things because I have to relate to you day in and day out. Right? We love one another. And then there's this fifth thing that sort of ties back into the beginning. And I've got it in red because it it sort of sums up a section and it's a, a jumping off point for the next section. He tells us to long for the gospel. God gives us the gospel. He gives us Christ. He gives us the death and resurrection. And then at the end of that section, the beginning of chapter 2, he tells them to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, which we said was the gospel. Right? And then that leads us into the next thing. He talks about that God has made us a community because we're a gospel-founded spiritual house. Because the only way that you and I are families because of what Christ has done, because of that, because we're chosen, because we're holy, because we're royal, we're royalty, because we're God's people, because we've received mercy. But again, He's laid this foundation because of what God has done. Therefore, we have a responsibility. And that responsibility then is to sacrifice. And we would think he's talking about the house. He's talking about the, the, the church, really, in most of chapter 2. And we'd think that the first thing on his mind would be, oh, so that we sacrifice for each other. But he doesn't. He turns our gaze to the world and says, you know those people that are causing you trouble? You know those folks that are persecuting you? You know those folks that are making your life miserable? Our attitude should be we submit to them. And there's this long section where he's talking about how we are supposed to deal with our own heart issues and not retaliate against the world. And Christ is the center of that. And he gives us, again, five things. The fight is not out there. The fight's in here. Right? We talked about walking by the Spirit. And then he says that we're to submit to government authorities. Again, that non-believing world, and why? So that they one day might realize the error of their ways and turn and glorify God. That's the whole purpose. The reason you do what you do is so that one day God may be glorified. We act a certain way around non-believers so that they will see the glory of God in our actions. They'll see Jesus Christ. Remember that middle section, right? He talks about government. He talks about slaves. Then he gives the example of Jesus. Then he talks about husbands and wives. Or wives and husbands. And everybody looks to Jesus to figure out how to act. So we submit to authorities. We submit to masters. I think the reason he doesn't address masters like Paul does in Ephesians is, my guess is there were were no masters in the church. It was a poor community he was writing to. Even that relationship was going to be the slave. There were no masters for him to address, I'm assuming, in that church. 
and then wives are to submit to husbands. And all of those, if we go through and look at those verses, all of those, it seems, are relation to believers to non-believers. Remember, even the wives, it says, and even if your husbands are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by your behavior. Right? So those first, those first four things, right? The battle of the flesh versus the battle of the people that are persecuting you. The way you relate to the government, the way you relate to masters, the way you relate to your husbands, wives, is so that they see Christ in you and turn to Him. But then he stays within the family and talks about husbands, though the command to husbands is, it appears from the text, they have believing wives, which would have made sense in the culture. The normal thing to do is if a husband changed faiths or changed religions, the family would as well. So I think Peter's assuming that if the man is a believer, people in the family would be as well. And he tells them to submit to the marriage. So now he's talking about other believers and he says, while you're not submitting to your wife, you're submitting to that relationship. You're dying to self to understand her. You're dying to self to treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You're putting to death your kingdom for your wife. Paul says it this way, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did the dishes every once in a while. What did Christ do for us? He gave himself. He died for us. Right? Husbands, that's the call. That is our call. Is We put to death building our own kingdom. And so it's in red because, again, it fits with this category, but then it's also the jumping off point to the next category because now he shifts gears again. He's talking about the way we relate to the outside world. But now he's going to pick up a theme he started in chapter 2 when he said, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, a quote from Psalm 34, he's now going to go back to Psalm 34 and pick up that theme of the fact that we are a family, we are together, and we sacrifice inside the house because we've tasted that the Lord is good. Why is it important? I mean, I get the idea of we behave a certain way so that non-believers see Jesus in us. Why does it matter that we sacrifice for one another? We're going to get into that in detail in a moment. But let's just flesh that out. Why is that important that we would sacrifice for one another? How does that matter? I mean, we're all family, right? So it's okay if I treat you poorly because you have to love me. <laughs> Why does it matter? Yeah, it goes back to that, right? It's what Jesus did. So it doesn't matter if you have to love me. I'm still called to behave a certain way even if you don't treat me well. Even if you do hurt my feelings. Even if, even if you think I'm not treating you well or I hurt your feelings or do something dumb. Right? The call is we, we do what Jesus did. We sacrifice for one another. But I don't think that's the I think that's the main reason, but I don't think that's the only reason. Why else would it be important for us as a family, as a body, to live a certain way? And notice where he started. He started with the way we behave towards outsiders. And why is that again? Why do we behave a certain way towards outsiders? So they'll see Jesus, right? 
Okay, so then why now does he transition to the way we behave with each other? Yeah, right? Okay, so, so they see you and they go, man, I, wanna, I want what you've got, right? And you say, well, I've got more than just this. Let me show you this family that I've got, right? And they show up here and and they go, ah, I don't really want that, right? Do we have anything to call the world to? Right? That's the question. Do we have anything to call the world to? So yes, ultimately, we can't forget that. Ultimately, the point of the way we treat each other is because that's the way Christ treats people. He's our example, and He's the only way we can do that. But we can't forget that there, people are watching They're not just watching you individually. They're watching how you relate to other people that you call your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is it real? I may be able to fool somebody out there, right, that I see once a week or once a minute, right? They don't know me. But if I invite them into this intimate body presence and and they see us bickering and arguing and fighting and not getting along, it's not real. And so it's not an either or. It's not that that our evangelism needs to be a certain way or that our church needs to be a certain way. It's both and, right? God calls us to that. And there's no way we can do that without God living through us, which is why we do this. We need the regular reminder that Christ died for us. Now, again, way back last year, we talked about several things that this symbolizes, one of which is our new identity. We talked about that the Lord's Supper, when Jesus first instituted that, was a Passover meal. And then we went back to Exodus, and we saw that the Passover meal was to be celebrated in family units. And so when Jesus invites these 12 guys who are not all related and has them sit down into a Passover meal, which was a family. He was saying, guys, you're my family. And that type of language continues to get used in the New Testament. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're God's children. That idea of family. And so, yes, we, we do this because we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. But it's also a reminder to us that you and I are family. And part of that death means I'm dying to self because I love you and I care about you. And I'm modeling Christ in the way He cared about His family, those 12 guys, even the one who betrayed Him. I don't think Judas left the room until after he got his feet washed. There are people that I, that I know are Christians that I really don't want to wash their feet. And it's, and it's difficult to, to figure out how Jesus did that. But He did that. We're going to sing another song. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. Just a reminder of what God has done for us. And while we're singing that song, I want you to think, how does that grace apply to the family? And then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together as nourishment for us to... to move on into the rest of 1 Peter. So would you stand with us, please? In 1 Corinthians 11, as we've talked about before, and as um, 
as Jim actually talked about um, just a few weeks ago, um, he writes to give them further instructions because he says in verse 18 of chapter 11, there are divisions among you. They were gathering and they were not treating each other as, Peter would say, co-heirs of the grace of life. There were uh, cliques. There were uh, certain people that were getting first dibs on food. He said, it doesn't look good. It's not pretty. And the reason it doesn't look good is because it doesn't look like what Jesus would do. And so he gives them these instructions. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And there's this idea of Jesus, again, didn't treat Peter and John better than Nathaniel or even Judas or Matthew. In fact, he called Matthew the former government employee and Simon the zealot who was tired of the government and would just as soon have them gone to sit down and and fellowship together, one not more important than the other. And so here we invite you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if if you have trusted Him, His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to participate with us. Parents, again, you know your children and can monitor them as well. But my encouragement to you as you as you partake, as we partake together, remember, number one, we, we do that because we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's a reminder that I have identified with Jesus, which means I've identified with His death, which means I'm supposed to die to self. And in the context of what we're talking about this morning is that means I die to self for the good of the person sitting next to me or across the aisle or three rows back. And that's the reminder. And so let this celebration of the fact that God has given His body and His blood for us be a reminder that when we don't do that perfectly, there's forgiveness. Would you take a moment where you are and and think back through your week? God, have I not sacrificed for a brother and sister in Christ like you've called me to? Or have I done the opposite? I've tried to get them to sacrifice for me. And would you confess that to God and then would you allow Him to speak forgiveness to you? As we were reminded, Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you pray together? Before we read... I'd ask you to, to read through this passage, but so what does it look like? What does it look like tangibly for you and I to sacrifice for one another? What does that look like? Let's, let's flesh that out before we look at some specifics that Peter says. Just in your mind, what does that look like? Phil's already giving things away. Yeah, I'll just be practical. That's, that's, that's vague, so that's okay. He didn't give too much away. What does that, what does that mean? Send cards and notes. Okay. One very practical way. This gene's very good about sending out cards and notes to people in the body. What else? Financial support. Okay. 
All right. Okay. Still, still vague. What, what does that look like? Examples. Okay. There are some of us who have certain gifts and abilities that others don't have, and how can we, how can we show? I mean, I've just heard example after example after example in this body of people. I'm not going to call anybody out and embarrass anybody, but there's people all the time that give of their talents because that's encouraging. That's a blessing when people do that. They don't charge for it. Just because. Glad to help. I have this gift. Let me serve you. How else? We pray for each other. I think sometimes accepting each other as they are instead of trying to change them. You know that they're an individual and maybe the one that they'd like to change that they're gracious to you. Mm-hmm. Right, because remember, the battle is going what's going on in here, Right? Right, you may drive me up the wall, and I may wish that you would change, right? But as as Paul David Tripp would say, you're not the cause of my sin, my anger, my bitterness, my frustration, but you've maybe given an occasion to see what's in my heart, right? But I don't cause you to sin. You don't cause me to sin. My wife doesn't cause me to sin. However much I might want to blame her for things, Right? She might give me an occasion to reveal what's in my heart, and that's why Peter says this is the issue, right? All of those things, prayer, service, cards, time, money, all of those things presuppose what? Think on that while I read. He says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Then he quotes Psalm 34, For who desires to love life and see good days? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What he's calling us to here is a sacrifice for one another. And he specifically then lists, he says ultimately that we're to bless one another as opposed to retaliation. Right? When you're reviled, don't revile in return. And he's talking about the body of Christ. Finally, you, he's talking about us. I think there are some commentators who would say he's still talking about the outside. But the language he uses here, I think he's talking about us. Right? Because there are instances when we would hurt each other with our words and the temptation is to escalate, to say something else, to get back, or at least to think back, right? So he says, no, instead, bless... But before that, he gives these five words, 
these five characteristics that we're to have towards one another. I want to flesh these out this morning. Unity, sympathy, love, compassion, and humility. So first of all, unity uh, means one mind, a common heritage of faith and tradition. Why is that important for us? Why is that important for us? Why Why does it matter if we're unified in what we believe or think? Does there's harmony? Correct. Right. What's the what's the hindrance to unity? Ultimately, what's the hindrance to unity? Selfishness or pride, right? I'm right. So you need to adjust to me versus me needing to adjust. I don't want to adjust to the way you do things. I have my preferences. By golly, I like them. Second thing he mentions is sympathy. That's seeing something from another's point of view. Uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. The ending of that book is is a marvelous thing of, of Atticus trying, through the whole book, Atticus trying to teach his kids. He didn't really use those words until the very end of seeing, of, of walking in someone else's shoes, right? But at the very end of the book, when Scout goes up on the porch of Boo Radley and she sees the neighborhood from his point of view and there's this kind of epiphany that whole summer of, of all that goes on with if you've not read that book you really really ought to um, marvelous story uh, but she finally walks in Boo, Boo Radley's shoes instead of thinking that he's weird instead of thinking that he's crazy instead of thinking that he's out to get him right she finally looks at things from his perspective and all of a sudden he's not so bad anymore right that sympathy is, is when I see things from your perspective, all of a sudden I can, I can relate to you. I can I cannot get so upset because I begin to understand where you're coming from. When you revile me, if I don't know anything about you and you revile me, I'm going to naturally want to counteract that by saying something back. But if I know you, right, and if I know what riles you up and I, and I know what's caused that, then I can go, okay, I know where he's coming from. I know the situation. I know what's pushing his buttons right now. I can just step back and, and let it blow over. And besides, ultimately, what difference does it make? <laughs> right? The next thing is love. I think we know what that is. Sacrificing for another's ultimate good. Right? That's what love is. sacrificing for your good which necessarily means I may have to give up my good but that's what we do for one another that's what body life looks like and if if an outsider comes in and sees us even these first three things see that we're we are you know people are giving up preferences for someone else that's attractive the fourth thing 
is compassion. Um, it's not just pity, but it's kindness that leads to action. Whenever in the Gospels Jesus says he has compassion for someone, it's not just this feeling in his gut, which it is, right? It's this word that's kind of, it comes from, in Greek, it's this guttural word that it's hard to pronounce. It's this gut feeling. But for Jesus, it always leads to action. I think Tim's going to talk about that today with the youth, right? Mark 6, I don't want to give anything away. In Mark 6, Jesus has compassion, and then he does something. He doesn't just go, oh, I feel sorry for him. Oh, got something to do. I'm busy. All right. My pity for you leads to something else. It leads me to take a step towards you, not away from you because I'm repulsed, because you're feeling something that I just can't handle right now. You're just too emotional. You're too whatever. You're bothering me. And those people were bothering Jesus in Mark chapter 6. They were bothering Him and His disciples. And He had compassion on them and He did something about it. The fifth thing is humility. In, in the Greek world where Peter was writing, humility was a negative trait. It was the inability to defend my own honor. It was a, a, a negative term. It's a bad word. You're humble. <laughs> you can't do anything to defend your honor. And Peter says, you know, you should choose to not feel like you need to defend your honor. That's, what, right? That's the whole issue. When, when you revile me or you slander me or, you're, or you make me mad, you hurt my feelings, my pride gets in the way and I want to defend myself. I, I'm right. Right? I want to be Right? And Peter says, no, why don't you choose not to defend your honor? What's interesting is, each of those things, and we've talked about a little bit, help us and are the exact opposite of when you're reviled, do not revile in return. Do not repay evil for evil. So I want to go through them again and kind of look at them from a different perspective. So the first one again, I think there's another one, Phil. We go through it. Yeah, okay, we asked that question. Unity. If if we're unified, then I'm in this together, right? God's kingdom is more important than my kingdom, so when you give me evil, I don't have to give you evil back. If that's my focus, I want to be unified. You can give me evil all day long, but it's not about my kingdom. You can tear my kingdom down because I got a better one. I got one that's eternal. I've got one that's lasting. I've got one that's that's going to cause me to be resurrected with joy. One day I'm going to be perfect. That's the kingdom I want to build and the kingdom I want to portray to the world. Second one, sympathy. I understand your weakness. I understand where you're coming from. Right? So when I understand that you're reviling me, you're giving me evil is not a show of strength. It's actually a show of where you're weak. It's where you're not walking in the Spirit. And it gives me a chance then to give you grace because that's what you need. You don't need evil back. You need grace. You need a picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Right? So if I understand your weakness then I can sympathize with you and go, it's okay. 
Love does what's best. It doesn't retaliate. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for they knew not what they do. I'm not very good at that. God, get them. I want justice now. The justice of the cross is not enough for us sometimes. Why? Because we're not patient. We're not ready, willing to wait. And somehow we think your sin's worse than my sin. Okay, Jesus paid for my sins, but I want somehow there to be consequences for your sin. Right? And if I recognize that, that love is, is doing what's best, that it's, it's, it's Jesus on the cross, then again, I can step back and go, okay, let's think through this a second. The fourth one. Compassion. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul ties it to forgiveness. Right? In the moment when I'm hurt, compassion means I'm concerned about you and I'm going to act in such a way that I deal with, with you in a way that doesn't somehow build me up. I'm willing to forgive in that moment. I may not say those words. You may not even ask. But if my heart's in the right place, if I'm following Christ, forgiveness is coupled with compassion. And then I can move towards you. I've forgiven you. If I'm not forgiving you, there's a wall up and I'm not going to move towards you. Right? How many of you know that, right? There's something between you and somebody else and it's so difficult to move towards them when you've still got that bitterness raging in your soul, right? So compassion requires forgiveness. And the only way you're going to find that is going to the cross and, and, and going, God, look what you've done for me. Fifth, humility. Recognizing who we are. I'm, I'm dependent. I, I am dependent upon God for grace. And you and I are equal at the foot of the cross. My sins and your sins put Jesus on the cross. Yours aren't any worse than mine. Mine aren't any worse. Yeah, we can rate sins if you want to for level of consequence and damage done to someone else. That's fine. And at times necessary. The Bible speaks to that. But ultimately, your sin and my sin put Christ on the cross. And when it comes to relationships, I can't think, oh, that's worse than what I've done. And so I can't love you. I can't. I've got to be humble. and I've got to think, I'm no different than you are. When you slander me, when you revile me, when you upset me, when you hurt my feelings, when, when those emotions well up. And ultimately, it goes back to chapter 2. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the battle, remember, it's in here. The war is in here. It's not what someone says or what someone does. That may need to be dealt with in the context of the church. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we brush sin aside and just work on our own heart. But this is where the battle starts. That's where it has to start. And if we do that, if we exhibit those characteristics of unity and sympathy and love and compassion, then, then the world has something to come to that's not only attractive, but beneficial. It can help them get from learning how to put off the old man and put on the new, how to get rid of those old habits that we find displeasurable because they're out in the world that we sometimes still do in secret. You were called to this. You were called to bless other people 
And the result of that, according to Peter, is that we'll be blessed. You say, well, now wait a minute. That kind of sounds like works righteousness. I do something and then God does something back. Well, again, we rip things out of context, we get in trouble. It does sound like that. But in the, in the, the grand narrative of Scripture, what we see is there's this, this wonderful upward spiral. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, God blesses you so that you can bless other people. We talked about that passage a year ago or so, I think. God blesses you. God gives you seed so that you will sow. All right, so God gives, right, so that we'll bless others. And when we bless others, God says, oh, he's, he's using the seed that I gave him. I'm going to give him some more. All right, to whom much is given, much is required. And the wonderful thing about that is when we do with what God's given us, there's always a continual supply. We don't run out. We can't outgive God. So this is not one happens before the other. This is just part of a circle that we only see a glimmer of here in 1 Peter. In the whole narrative of God, what we see is God gives, we give what He gives us, and then God continues to do that. Grace does not run out. It does not end. You were called to bless one another. That is your calling in Christ. And sometimes we're afraid, but if... We said this, I've said it a hundred times. If I bless you, if I'm willing to sacrifice for you, there's a good chance you're going to take advantage of that. Yes. That's exactly right. If you bless me, there's a good chance I'm going to take advantage of that. Yes, that's exactly right. If I submit to my marriage and love my wife as Christ loved the church, she will take advantage of that. If she submits to me, I will take advantage of that because I'm human. That's what God has called us to because that's what Jesus did. He gave Himself. He submitted to the Father knowing full well that humanity would take advantage of Him. And they did. And that's what Peter has called us to. And that's how we live in a world that hates us. As we give, and we give, and we give. And the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood yet. Though many of our brothers and sisters in parts of the world have. We've not been called to do that, that I'm aware of in this room. You may know some people personally that have. I personally don't know anybody that has. And that's the call. And the good news is Peter reminds us though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's a promise that he has died for us and gathered us as a body of believers to Himself that we might bring Him honor and glory and one day we will be like Him John says for we shall see Him as He is let's pray together and then we're going to sing one more song Father your word is rich and full and so helpful for us and so impossible to do God, we need your grace. 
And there are times I don't want to be unified with certain people. There are times I don't really want to have any sympathy. I don't want to move towards people. I don't want to have compassion on people. I don't want to love them. And yet you've called us to do that. Help me, God, to see your face. That I might be able to to love the people that you have called me to love. Help us as a body to do that. To give and to sacrifice for one another. That you might be glorified. And that the world might see you in not only us as individuals, but as us as a body that you might be glorified again and again and again. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? I asked you a question when we got back into the text at the beginning. Is, is what's, the, what's the assumption for all those things? In other words, what has to be in place for us to have compassion, for us to love, for us to be humble towards one another, for us to have sympathy, for us to be unified? foundation for that is we have to actually know each other. I mean, yes, we have to understand what that looks like in Christ, but if I don't know you, if I'm not spending time with you, there's no way that I can exhibit those characteristics. It won't happen. That's why God calls us to spend time together in fellowship. My prayer is that you have a, a wonderful week filled with the grace and the glory of God in Christ Jesus. You are dismissed.